This is Beyond Texas. I'm W.F. Strong, your host and storyteller. Today, we're going to East Aurora, New York, to look at the life of Albert Hubbard and to enjoy his most famous essay of about three pages, called A Message to Garcia. He lived from 1856 to 1915. He claimed to be a socialist and an anarchist. In fact, his second most famous essay was titled, Jesus Was an Anarchist. But A Message to Garcia was his most famous monster hit, and ironically became an ever-present pamphlet in offices and factories of capitalism. And you'll soon see why. Let me share it with you now. In all this Cuban business, there is one man who stands out on the horizon of my memory like Mars at Perihelion. When war broke out between Spain and the United States, it was very necessary to communicate quickly with the leader of the insurgents. Garcia was somewhere in the mountain fastnesses of Cuba. No one knew where. No mail or telegraph could reach him. The president must secure his cooperation and quickly what to do. Someone said to McKinley, There's a fellow by the name of Rowan who will find Garcia for you if anybody can. Rowan was sent for and given a letter to be delivered to Garcia. How the fellow by the name of Rowan took the letter, sealed it up in an oilskin pouch, strapped it over his heart, and in four days landed by night off the coast of Cuba from an open boat, disappeared into the jungle, and in three weeks came out on the other side of the island, having traversed a hostile country on foot, and having delivered his letter to Garcia, are things I have no special desire now to tell in detail. The point I wish to make is this. McKinley gave Rowan a letter to be delivered to Garcia. Rowan took the letter and did not ask, Where is he at? By the Eternal there is a man whose form should be cast in deathless bronze and the statue placed in every college in the land. It is not book-learning young men need, nor instruction about this or that, but a stiffening of the vertebrae, which will cause them to be loyal to a trust, to act promptly, concentrate their energies, do the thing, carry a message to Garcia. General Garcia is dead now, but there are other Garcias. No man who has endeavored to carry out an enterprise where many hands are needed, but has been well-nigh appalled at times by the imbecility of the average man, the inability or unwillingness to concentrate on a thing and do it, slipshod assistance, foolish inattention, doughty indifference, and half-hearted work seem the rule. And no man succeeds unless by hook or crook or threat he forces or bribes other men to assist him. Or mayhap God in his goodness performs a miracle and sends him an angel of light for an assistant. You, reader, put this matter to a test. You are sitting now in your office. Six clerks are within your call. Summon any one of them and make this request. Please, if you would... Look up in the encyclopedia and make a brief memorandum for me concerning the life of Correggio. Will the clerk quietly say, yes, sir, and go and do the task? On your life he will not. He will look at you out of a fishy eye and ask one or more of the following questions. Who was he? 
which encyclopedia? Was I hired for that? Don't you mean Bismarck? What's the matter with Charlie doing it? He's not busy. Is he dead? Is there any hurry for this? Shouldn't I just bring you the book and let you look it up yourself? What do you want to know for? I will lay you ten to one that after you have answered the questions and explained how to find the information and why you want it, the clerk will go off and get one of the other clerks to help him find Garcia and then come back to you and tell you there's no such man. Of course, I may lose my bet, but according to the law of average, I will not. Now, if you are wise, you will not bother to explain to your assistant that Correggio is indexed under the C's and not the K's. But you will smile sweetly and say, never mind, I'll look it up myself. And this incapacity for independent action, this moral stupidity, this infirmity of the will, this unwillingness to cheerfully catch hold and lift, are the things that put pure socialism so far into the future. If men will not act for themselves, what will they do when the benefit of their effort is for all? A first mate with knotted club seems necessary, and the dread of getting the bounce Saturday night holds many a worker in place. Advertise for a stenographer, and nine times out of ten those who apply can neither spell nor punctuate and do not think it necessary to do so. Can such a one write a letter to Garcia? You see that bookkeeper, said the foreman to me in a large factory? Yes, what about him? Well, he's a fine accountant, but if I'd send him to town on an errand, he might accomplish the errand all right, and on the other hand, he might stop at four bars on the way, and when he got to Main Street, would forget what he had been sent for. Can such a man be entrusted to carry a message to Garcia? We have recently been hearing much maudlin sympathy expressed for the, for the downtrodden denizen of the sweatshop and the homeless wanderer searching for honest employment, and with it all often go many hard words for the men in power. Nothing is said about the employer who grows old before his time in a vain attempt to get lazy ne'er-do-wells to do intelligent work and his long, patient striving with help that does nothing but loaf when his back is turned. In every store and factory, there is a constant weeding-out process going on. The employer is constantly sending away help that have shown their incapacity to further the interests of the business, and others are taken on. No matter how good times are, this sorting continues. Only if times are hard and work is scarce, this sorting is done finer, but out and forever out, the incompetent and unworthy go. It is the survival of the fittest. Self-interest prompts every employer to keep the best, those who can carry a message to Garcia. I know one man of really brilliant parts who has not the ability to manage a business of his own, and yet who is absolutely worthless to anyone else, because... He carries with him constantly the insane suspicion that his employer is oppressing or intending to oppress him. He cannot give orders and he will not receive them. Should a message be given to him to take to Garcia, his answer would probably be, take it yourself. 
Tonight, this man walks the streets looking for work, the wind whistling through his threadbare coat. No one who knows him dare employs him, for he is a regular firebrand of discontent. He is impervious to reason, and the only thing that can impress him is the toe of a thick-soled number nine boot. Of course, I know that one so morally deformed is no less to be pitied than a physical cripple, but in your pitying, let us drop a tear, too, for the men who are striving to carry on a great business, whose working hours are not limited by the whistle or the clock, and whose hair is fast turning white through the struggle to hold the line against dowdy indifference, slipshod imbecility, and the heartless ingratitude which, but for their enterprise, would be both hungry and homeless. Have I put the matter too strongly? Possibly I have. But when all the world has gone a-slumming, I wish to speak a word of sympathy for the man who succeeds, the man who against great odds has directed the efforts of others, and having succeeded, finds there's nothing in it, nothing but bare board and clothes. I have carried a dinner pail and worked for a day's wages, and I have also been an employer of labor, and I know there is something to be said on both sides." There is no excellence, per se, in poverty. Rags are no recommendation. And all employers are not rapacious and high-handed any more than all poor men are virtuous. My heart goes out to the man who does his work when the boss is away, as well as when he is at home. And the man who, when given a letter for Garcia, quietly takes the letter without asking any idiotic questions and with no lurking intention of chucking it into the nearest sewer, or of doing anything else but deliver it. That man never gets laid off, nor has to go on strike for higher wages. Civilization is one long, anxious search for just such individuals. Anything such a man asks will be granted. His kind is so rare that no employer can afford to let him go. He is wanted in every city, town, and village, in every office, shop, store, and factory. The world cries out for this man. He is needed and needed badly. The man who can carry a message to Garcia. Hubbard said that he wrote a message to Garcia in about three hours and included it in his modestly circulated magazine, The Philistine, as merely a filler. But like all things that go viral, it hit a long-missed target unintentionally. It said what many a manager and corporate president had been thinking for years, and it said it better and more powerfully and more patriotically. So what happened was that that issue of the magazine sold out quickly, and orders for reprints came pouring in. A railroad company asked for a 100,000 copies. And what's more interesting is that Hubbard didn't know why. He asked his employees, what's going on? What's got everybody stirred up here? It was then that he learned that the message to Garcia had some magic to it, and perhaps marketing magic. So he said the essay's popularity resulted over the years in printing 40 million copies in every known language. That was no doubt an exaggeration. It has been found in all the major languages of the world, and perhaps after the Internet began passing it around, maybe that 40 million mark has been reached. Who knows? We do know that it elevated Mr. Hubbard considerably, made him a star on the lecture circuit, 
and inadvertently led to his unusual death, but we'll save that story appropriately until the end of this episode. First, let's see if the message to Garcia is true. Well, broadly speaking, it's true, but not in all its details. Was there a Rowan? Yes. Did McKinley summon him to his office and give him a letter that he sealed in a waterproof pouch over his heart? No, none of that happened. Did Rowan go to Cuba and deliver a message to Garcia alone? Yes and no. Rowan did deliver an oral message to Garcia, and it took great suffering and courage, but he didn't do it alone. Here's what happened. After McKinley was told in the Oval Office by Colonel Wagner, head of Army Intelligence, that there was a man by the name of Rowan who could get a message to Garcia for him, McKinley said, send him. So, Wagner summoned Rowan to the Army-Navy Club in Washington, D.C., and asked him when the next boat to Jamaica was leaving, and Rowan thought he was joking. He went out and checked the schedule and came back and said, Tomorrow? Wagner said, I want you to be on it. Still, Rowan thought he was joking because Wagner was known to be a practical joker. So Rowan played along until Wagner began laying out the president's wish that he should go to Cuba immediately and find Garcia and deliver the message that the president wants to help with his revolution, but needs to know the strength of his forces and the strengths of the Spanish forces. McKinley wanted a full intelligence report. But all the messages were to be oral, writing things down, as Rowan himself later pointed out in his own article about how he carried a message to Garcia, said this, quote, History has furnished us with the record of too many tragedies to warrant taking risks. Nathan Hale of the Continental Army and Lieutenant Ritchie in the war with Mexico were both caught with letters. Both were put to death, and in the case of the latter, the plans for Scott's invasion of Veracruz was divulged to the enemy. But whether the message was oral or written matters little. Rowan still had to push through at all costs and deliver his message and return with the intelligence sought. The biggest difference in Rowan's version and the actual history is that Hubbard went by way of Jamaica and had prearranged escorts all along the way. He was taken across Jamaica in a series of carriages and then put on a boat to Cuba that dropped him on a beach where he was met by a small band of rebels that led him through the jungles and over the mountains for nine days before they found Garcia. Here is Rowan's description of traversing the Cuban mountains. I could not help observing that we were being led with remarkable skill and speed. We had entered the forest again and were hiding in the evergreen dress of the mountains. The trail was comparatively level, but crossed at intervals by watercourses with steep banks. The paths were so narrow we were constantly running afoul of tree trunks barking our shins and dislodging the impedimenta from the backs of our horses. Still, the guide held to a steady gait that caused me to marvel. My usual position was near the center of the column, but I wanted to be near this centaur who was in the lead, and at the next watercourse crossing, I rode forward just to observe him. 
He was a coal-black Negro, Dionisito Lopez, a lieutenant in the Cuban army. He could trace a course through this trackless forest, through the tangled growth, as fast as he could ride. His skill with the machete was amazing. He carved a way for us through the jungle. Networks of vines fell before his steady strokes right and left. Closed spaces became openings. The man appeared tireless. Here's what Rowan wrote about the meeting with Garcia. As we arrived in front of General Garcia's headquarters, the Cuban flag was hanging lazily over the door from an inclined staff. The method of reaching the presence of a man to whom one is accredited in such circumstances was new to me. We formed in a line, dismounted together, and stood to horse. Gervasio was known to the general, so he advanced to the door and was admitted. He returned in a short time with General Garcia, who greeted me cordially and asked me to enter with my attendant. The general introduced me to his staff, all in clean white uniforms, wearing sidearms, and explained that the delay was caused by the necessary scrutiny of my credentials from the Cuban junta in Jamaica, which Gervasio had delivered to him. There is humor in everything I had been described in letters from the junta as a man of confidence, and the translator had made me a confidence man. A few hours later, all discussion ended, and Garcia asked Rowan if he could start heading back to Washington that day. Garcia would send three of his top men with him to provide intelligence to the U.S. military. Rowan would have liked to arrest it, but, but duty demanded that he get back on the trail and complete his mission as soon as possible. When he returned to the U.S., he did meet briefly with McKinley, who told him, You have performed a very brave deed. So the heart of the story is true. The details have been altered somewhat, but as it is a philosophical essay about getting the job done at all costs, Rowan certainly exemplified that kind of zeal. The essay, this one essay, made Hubbard's career as a writer and inspirational speaker. It made him a success. He didn't set out to write an internationally famous, timeless message. He dashed off a work quickly, the central ideas of which had likely been lurking inside of him for a long time. Writing itself is epistemic, so the process of writing helped him discover the message within him and clarify it. But he wasn't a novice writer. He had been writing little books and pamphlets and essays for years. It was just at this time that his long years of preparation struck gold in the way of an unexpected epiphany. When the Titanic sunk in 1912, he wrote another well-received essay about Ida Strauss, the only woman on the Titanic to reject her place on the lifeboat and stay with her husband so they would die together. He wrote, Mr. and Mrs. Strauss, I envy you that legacy of love and loyalty left to your children and grandchildren. The calm courage that was yours all your long and useful career was your possession in death. You knew how to do three great things. You knew how to live, how to love, and how to die. One thing is sure. There are just two respectable ways to die. One is of old age, and the other is by accident. All disease is indecent, suicide is atrocious, but to pass out, as did Mr. and Mrs. Isidore Strauss, is glorious. Few have such a privilege. Happy lovers both, 
in life. They were never separated, and in death, they were not divided. It was just three years later that Hubbard found himself in a similar situation. He was going to Europe on an inspirational speaking tour for A Message to Garcia and other more recent writings when his ship was struck by a torpedo from a German U-boat 11 miles off the coast of Ireland. A rare survivor wrote to Hubbard's children about his last moments, which she happened to witness. I cannot say specifically where your father and Mrs. Hubbard were when the torpedoes hit, but I can tell you just what happened after that. They emerged from their room, which was on the port side of the vessel, and came onto the boat deck. Neither appeared perturbed in the least. Your father and Mrs. Hubbard linked arms, the fashion in which they always walked the deck, and stood apparently wondering what to do. I passed him with a baby, which I was taking to a lifeboat, when he said, Well, Jack, they've got us. They are a damn sight worse than I ever thought they were. They did not move very fast away from where they originally stood, and as I moved to the other side of the ship in preparation for a jump into the water, I called to him, What are you going to do? And he just shook his head while Mrs. Hubbard smiled and said, There's, There does not seem to be anything to do. The expression seemed to produce action on the part of your father, for then he did one of the most dramatic things I ever saw done. He simply turned with Mrs. Hubbard and entered a room on the top deck, the door of which was open, and closed it behind him. It was apparent that his idea was that they should die together and not risk being parted on going into the water. I'm W.F. Strong. You've been listening to Beyond Texas.